this isn't the real Caesar's Palace, is it? What do you mean? Did Caesar live here? Um, no. I don't think so. I went to Vegas last weekend. Pretty crazy. Vegas, baby, Vegas! Gentlemen, welcome to Las Vegas. Why don't you give me half the money you were gonna bet? Then we'll go out back, I'll kick you in the nuts, and we'll call it a day. Some guys just can't handle Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 43 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'll be your host for this podcast journey to one of my favorite places on the planet, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Before we get going into this episode of the show, I want to thank my guest from the previous episode, Richard Zoglin, the author of Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show. There's no other performer who's as connected with Las Vegas as Elvis is, and it was great to get the inside scoop on the history of the King of Rock and Roll's reign in Sin City. If you haven't had a chance to listen yet, I'd invite you to jump into the archives wherever you get your podcasts and check out episode number 42, Long Live the King. I also want to give a mention to my pals over at Vegas Podtunes, who were kind enough to go ahead and animate my conversation with Chris from the Faces and Aces Las Vegas podcast about awkward Airbnb experiences. I gotta say, I was super impressed with how it turned out. It was absolutely hilarious. If you want to check it out for yourself, search out Vegas Podtunes on YouTube and look for episode number five, or follow the link from the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. And speaking of the website, thanks to everyone who's taken the time to complete the audience survey, but I'm always looking for more feedback. Click on the link on the site or in the show notes and share your thoughts and opinions on the podcast. All right, on to the show. We begin with Vegas news you can use. First, a couple of big closings to tell you about. One of the most iconic restaurants in the Mandalay Bay Resort, Red Square, has officially closed its doors. The Russian-themed vodka bar and restaurant, known for its headless Vladimir Lenin statue, which featured in-house infused vodka and special twists on Russian cuisine, had been a part of Mandalay Bay since they opened back in 1999 and was one of the resort's premier attractions. A replacement for Red Square has yet to be announced. MGM Resorts has also announced that Carnegie Deli in the Mirage, famous for their sky-high corned beef sandwiches and cheesecake, will be closing down for good in early 2020. MGM made the decision to part ways with Carnegie Deli and plans to introduce a new restaurant concept next year at the Mirage space. For their part, though, Carnegie Deli, who have been a part of the Mirage and the MGM family since 2004, are not bitter and are actively looking for a new home on the Las Vegas Strip, even going as far as saying that they'd be willing to work with MGM Resorts again. When the new Virgin Hotels Las Vegas opens in November 2020 to replace the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino, there might be something missing. Resort fees. Virgin Hotels CEO Raul Leal says the company is committed to price transparency. Therefore, they oppose the practice of adding on resort fees to the advertised room rates at the end of a booking process. In a recent review, Leal said that when Virgin Hotels first launched, they looked at resort fees and determined that they don't add a lot to the bottom line and really don't accomplish anything other than making guests angry. 
If Virgin Hotels decides to follow their no resort fee policy, they will be the first major property in Las Vegas to not charge a resort fee. And celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay has revealed that he's planning to open his sixth Las Vegas restaurant in 2020. During a private anniversary celebration for Gordon Ramsay's steak at the Paris, Ramsay said that the new restaurant would be called Lucky Cat and described it as Asian-influenced. And although he kept the details to a minimum, he said he's been working on the concept for the past three years. And that's Vegas news you can use. On to the show. It's a little-known fact that just over 60 miles away from the glitz and glamour of the Las Vegas Strip, the U.S. government used to test atomic weapons. Starting in 1951, just as the Cold War with Russia was starting to heat up, the U.S. Department of Energy began the testing of nuclear bombs in the Nevada desert. At night, the bombs lit up the sky, and the mushroom clouds could be spotted from the rooftops of the downtown hotels, all of which led to the creation of Las Vegas's atomic culture. Helping to educate people about Sin City's nuclear past is one of my favorite Las Vegas attractions, the National Atomic Testing Museum. And my guest for this episode of the podcast is Michael Hall, the museum's executive director. Michael and I had a great discussion about the history of the United States Atomic Testing Program, the effects it had on Las Vegas, including the creation of a tourism industry based entirely on atomic testing, and the risks associated with detonating nuclear weapons within such a short distance of a populated area. We also talked about the creation of the National Atomic Testing Museum, the mission of the museum, and some of the amazing exhibits on display. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Hall of the National Atomic Testing Museum. First of all, Michael, uh, thank you so much for for taking the time to chat today. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. So, I, as I was, uh, you know, I said initially um, before we we started recording, I'm. I'm a huge fan of the National Atomic Testing Museum. My wife and I have made lots of visits to, to the museum. I always enjoy it because I always find there's there's something new every time I go, or even even if there isn't necessarily something new every time I go, I will spot new stuff every time I go. And it's always at the top of my list of recommendations for for friends and people that are going to Vegas. And I've even managed to educate uh, a few of my, uh, my local Vegas friends about you guys. I, I was out for dinner with a friend of mine one night and was talking about, you know, going to the museum. And she said, God, I had no idea that was even a thing. I'm really, I really need to go and check that out for myself. So it's, uh, it's such a, a cool spot and, and I'm happy you guys are there. It, it is um, welcomed by a lot of people. We have a lot of visitors from uh, all over the world, in fact. Um, so it's very much appreciated. So when did the National Atomic Testing Museum get established? When when did it become a thing? And, and what was kind of the, the mission and the vision behind the museum? It opened in 2005 uh, as a museum, but its roots go back a lot further. Uh, atomic testing in Nevada ended in 1995, and a lot of the, the leaders that were involved, uh, that were running the test site involved in atomic testing, uh, after that, you know, gradually moved towards their retirement years, and they wanted to leave a legacy. They wanted to preserve this important history, and nobody else was really uh, re recognizing the value of this history at that time. So they came up with an idea 
of founding a historical association with a dream of having a museum, a museum that would concentrate on atomic testing. So that was the the origin. I mean, it took years to put the the whole process together, but luckily it opened in 2005, and uh, now we're still we're still going strong here today. And you guys are also officially you're a, a Smithsonian Institution affiliate, correct? We're an affiliate, and we're also a national museum. We were voted a national museum by an act of Congress. So, I mean, and as a Canadian, this is a, a question that I, I'm, I'm asking, just kind of asking out there. What what does that do for the museum? I mean, obviously, it, it helps uh, increase your guys' profile on a on a not just a local level, but a national level and a state level, obviously. Does it help as far as things like funding and things like that? Uh, it- over the years, we've benefited from loans and uh, cooperation from the Smithsonian and different government institutions. We, we don't get funded because of it specifically. It does, as you said, help our image, and we have to meet certain criteria to live up to that status. So it, uh, in, in one sense, it's a type of uh, hallmark of who we are and the quality of our museum. So let's talk about atomic testing in the U.S., I'll be honest, the first time I went to the museum, I didn't quite know what to expect. And and again, as a, a Canadian, I mean, I know our Cold War history and and what was involved and, and some of the um, I'm, a, I'm a huge military buff and, and aviation fanatic and Air Force fanatic and things like that. So I knew a little bit about our side of things. I knew next to nothing about the U.S. side of things. And, and I don't know that a lot of people really quite realize the place that Las Vegas and Nevada specifically had in the part of atomic testing in the U.S., do they? Well, that's a good point. You know, everybody is somewhat familiar with the first nuclear test in New Mexico during the war, Trinity. And then they, they have a lot of images of our Pacific proving ground. There, were, there was a lot of nuclear testing up through the 1950s out in the Marshall Islands and different Pacific areas. But not everybody realized we were actually testing nuclear weapons here in the United States, in Nevada. And it wasn't just Nevada. The Nevada test site and its contractors went to other states occasionally to do nuclear tests as well. And so you mentioned a little bit earlier the the time frame over which the testing occurred. When when did it really begin? When when did it start? And I guess the other big question to ask too is why was Nevada selected to be the testing ground for this program? Uh, two good questions. Uh, nuclear testing after World War II started as early as 1946. They had a big operation out in Bikini Island called Crossroads. We have a really nice exhibit on that, in fact. And then they they did more tests in the Pacific. But by 1951, a number of things were happening. First of all, the Cold War was heating up. And, you know, originally there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, energy or um, uh, priority, I should say, about nuclear testing. It was kind of on the back burner. But when Russia tested their first nuclear weapon in 1949 – Gradually, an arms race started, and we realized to be competitive, to stay competitive, we had to continue to test nuclear weapons. Now, going out to the Pacific was extremely expensive, time-consuming, difficult to do. Uh, It was necessary for some of the larger tests, but they petitioned for a stateside test site that would, would make it easier and more timely to test nuclear weapons. Now, Nevada had a couple of advantages. First, it was close to the only laboratory at that time, which which was in Los Alamos, New Mexico. 
and that's where the original Manhattan Project began. Uh, Nevada also had an advantage in that during World War II, a large piece of land was set aside uh, known as the Las Vegas Bombing and Gunnery Range. And that was an area where, you know, the B-17, B-24 pilots would train to drop bombs in, in preparation for their uh, deployment over at the 8th Air Force. Uh, and it was still uh, there, um, part of Nellis Air Force Base. So, and it was a big plot of land out in the middle of nowhere. So it was just a very logical place to take a chunk of that old Las Vegas bombing and gunnery range and set it aside for nuclear testing ground. And that, by early 1951, uh, had been opened up and set aside for the first stateside nuclear test in January of 1951. And so I guess the uh, another question that, that a lot of people ask and, and not realizing where this happened is exactly how far away from the city of Las Vegas did this testing occur? It was only 65 miles. Uh, north of Las Vegas. But keep in mind, in 1951, Las Vegas was about 25,000 people. It was a very, very small town. Uh, No one really figured Las Vegas would be part of the equation. Uh, The concept early on was that when they did a nuclear test, the scientists would fly out from New Mexico and landed a little airstrip there adjacent to the test site known as Indian Springs. And then the first test, they literally flew bombs out in bombers from Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico, and they dropped them on the test site. Now, today, that would almost be inconceivable for anybody that you would drop an atomic bomb from an airplane on in Nevada, you know, yeah. or any state for that matter. But that's how they tested the first bombs, and then everybody went home, okay? Uh but as time went by, they had to do more and more testing. You know, the Cold War heated up even more. The arms race in, intensified. So they had to do more and more tests. And they quickly realized that they had to get better diagnostics. They had to start putting the bombs on top of steel towers like they did actually with the first nuclear test out of New Mexico. Uh, and to do that, you had to bring in contractors to build the towers. I mean, there were there was nothing out there. There were no roads, no wells, no power lines. None of that existed. That all had to be built and developed for this more expensive nuclear testing. And to do that, you had to bring in civilian contractors. Okay, well, the civilian contractors had families. The families had kids. You know, the kids needed schools. Uh, the only place to really gravitate to was this teeny tiny little town called Las Vegas. Anyway, that went on for a period of 30-some years, and 30-some years later, 300,000 people had migrated to Las Vegas, Nevada. Today, the valley contains almost 2 million people. Uh, A big part of that was because nuclear testing was the main economic driver for the state of Nevada for many, many decades. Let's talk a little bit about that construction of of that facility out there. I mean, as you say, it was... It was thousands of people and millions of dollars that was spent to build essentially what was a a city in the middle of nowhere for the people that were out there that were working. I mean, I, I you know, as I mentioned, I've been to the museum and I've seen the exhibit. Was it Mercury? Was that the name of the, the facility that they built or the quote unquote town that they built? Yes. Now, Mercury was the base camp. Uh, people get the conception that it was a town and it was a town in the sense that it had all the things you needed. Uh, you know, a restaurant and gas stations and whatever, but it was a it was a base camp for mainly the civilian contractors that ran the test site. 
the public did not go there unless they had a reason to go there. It was, to this day, is a very secure site. But it was, it, it was and is a fairly small area. Again, it's a base camp with support buildings. The test site itself, though, is um, almost as large as the state of uh, Rhode Island. And it, there's complexes and buildings and different sets of int- infrastructure that have been built all over that area. It's widely, widely diverse and scattered. So it's a huge area, but there's no one really big concentration of things in any one spot necessarily. I found it interesting going through the museum and and looking at the information about Mercury. And I mean, they did everything from social halls and bowling alleys and bars and pubs. And I guess that was mainly just so the people working there, you maintained that level of morale and that level of maybe not feeling like you're in the middle of nowhere. Yes, they had they had a chapel. Uh, they, As you said, they had a bowling alley. There was, there was a famous steakhouse there. Uh, they gave it uh, a zip code, and to get a zip code to facilitate mail, you had to give it a name. And they came up uh, supposedly with the name Mercury because they were finding so many – the early people out there in the early 50s were finding so many empty mercury bottles out in the desert. That went back to the days of the early prospectors who used mercury in testing for gold and different metals. So that's supposedly how the name Mercury came about. But the name was just created so they could get a a post office box. Gotcha. Okay. And so over the course of those years, how many atomic tests were actually conducted out at that that test site or at various test sites around Nevada? There There were two main phases of nuclear testing. The first phase was the atmospheric period. That's where they were literally blowing the bombs up in the atmosphere right above the desert floor. There were exactly 100 of those tests from 1951 uh, to 1963. Now, in 1963, President Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev signed the Limited Test Ban Treaty uh, that basically forced nuclear testing underground. And... uh, Russia and America adhered to underground testing from 1963 to 1992 when both sides ended testing. And there were approximately 824 underground tests at the test site in Nevada. There were a few others around the country uh, in other states, some in Alaska. Um, so there were, there were almost 1,000 nuclear tests in Nevada and over 1,000 nuclear tests during that period. And the uh, the scars, so to speak, of those those tests are still out there, aren't they? You watch video or you see film of of these tests. I mean, there was nothing subtle about these tests. <laughs> they they left giant craters. Correct. If you look at aerial photographs of the test site, uh, you see a lot of craters. Okay, and people get the impression those craters are from the above ground test, but that's not true. The above ground test, most of those, the the fireball barely touched the ground or didn't touch the ground at all. They didn't leave a crater. The craters came from the underground testing period. And as I said, I think there were about 824 of those. When you blow a bomb up deep underground, you create a a cavity. And up above, it creates a subsidence of the soil or depression. And those craters are known as subsidence craters. They're generally, they vary, but they're about 50 feet deep. I've been out there on a tour, and you can actually drive down into one of them. They're not extremely deep, but, you know, from the air, from aerial photographs, it looks impressive because they did most of these on the two dry lake beds out there, and they're just pockmarked, you know, with hundreds of these craters. 
Now, there is an exception to, to that. There are some very, very large craters out there, a handful, and one exceptionally big crater. That actually comes from a different project, a civilian project called Plowshare, where for a period they were experimenting with using nuclear weapons for civil engineering. They thought they could build a new Panama Canal or create harbors and that sort of stuff. Uh, and in the course of that research, we created some very deep, big man-made craters. There's only a handful of those, though. And so, I mean, looking back on it now with 2019 eyes and sensibility, how does the idea of using <laughs> nuclear weapons for for creating canals or, or development or like that? I mean, I guess at the time it just it seemed fine and it just kind of made sense. Looking at it now, it seems I don't want to say ridiculous, but it seems a little bit silly when you when you look at the the dangers of of nuclear activity like that it, it seems ridiculous to us today we wouldn't do that the russians however actually did have civil engineering projects use, using nuclear weapons but their tolerance for radioactivity was always considered higher than ours uh, although we learned a lot over the years in the early years we didn't really appreciate and we didn't know everything we know today and that was another thing that came out of nuclear testing i mean you you learn as you go we didn't know all the dangers that we do today back then and i found it interesting too in in the uh, bits of research that i did about the, the the testing in nevada some of that testing involved um destruction and survivability testing and testing new materials and uh testing types of building structures and things like that i thought that was really interesting Yes, you're talking about the weapons effects test, and those were also integrated with some civil uh, defense uh, test. And that's where you have these iconic pictures you see of buildings being imploded basically by a nuclear weapon. And there's this famous image of these uh, forest of trees that are going like this, and then they're going like that. Uh, those were actually trees that were cut down from the mountaintops and placed in holes in the desert near a nuclear blast to gauge you know effects and this sort of thing and they they built all sorts of buildings wooden buildings brick buildings concrete buildings and they blew them up and they put them at different uh, stages or distances from the nuclear blast to and they learned a lot about the effects of nuclear weapons um, they also learned a lot about building just basic building construction that you know is applicable today to def defend your house or increase the structure of your house against hurricanes and tornadoes and things like that and seeing some of the the destruction that happened with some of those um, with some of those blasts and some of those tests, it it almost and again I guess you're, we're looking at this through 2019 eyes, but one of the neatest things that you guys have are some of those old videos and and photos and such of duck and cover and all that kind of stuff. Seeing the destruction that comes out of the these these tests, again the duck and cover almost kind of seems ridiculous, doesn't it? <laughs> It's, it's a comical thing that we look back on. There was a period where we had a lot of civil defense initiatives in this country, but they were never as extensive as people get the impression. They were mainly just literature. There, there were some, you know, bomb shelters set aside for people and this sort of stuff. But keep in mind, this was the early days. This is when Russia and America had arsenals of atomic weapons, fission weapons. What happened by the mid to later 1950s is both sides started experimenting with 
uh, thermonuclear devices or fusion devices. That's the process that takes place on the surface of the sun. And those those devices were, were so much more powerful, so much bigger. You couldn't even test those in Nevada. Most of those tests took place out in the, the Marshall Islands. And when you moved into that later period, uh, you know, the, the weapons literally became so big and so extensive that uh, – a lot of the earlier civil defense initiatives kind of just went by the wayside and, and people, especially government, gradually started to, to conveniently ignore it because it just – it got to the point where, you know, the money was going into the arsenals and, and proactively, you know, preventing uh, war – as opposed to type of imaginal mentality or bomb shoulder mentality where you're, you're trying to dig in and duck and cover and this, because they came to realize it just it was not practical. Right. So when these tests initially started in the early 50s, Las Vegas was already starting to become established as a, a, a gambling destination and a place where people would go to vacation. Was there concern that that would chase people away from Las Vegas? Well, actually, the, the first period of nuclear testing, where the bombs were going off above ground, was a very popular period. It was a very, uh, uh, it was a time in America where people were very patriotic and they wanted to do their their duty. And that was, was especially true in Las Vegas. Now, Las Vegas was still very much of a small community, but you're right. It, it, it started the the gambling and the tourist attraction appeal started to come in, in that time too. And during that period, it was the Atomic Energy Commission that oversaw nuclear testing. And they realized the PR value of it. And some of the tests, they invited participants. Uh, it got to the point where they actually advertised when the tests were taking place. And visitors to Las Vegas loved to go to the rooftops uh, in the early morning hours. And I say early morning hours because that's when most of the nuclear tests occurred, just before dawn. And that was because that was an optimal time to photograph the nuclear weapon. That's why they took place at that period. But people would go out and stay up late to watch these these mushroom clouds in the air. So it really it had quite the opposite effect of of what the fears might have been. Correct. Now, in contrast to that, the second period of nuclear testing, the underground period, that was not as popular. People couldn't see anything. Uh, Las Vegas had gotten much bigger by that period. The tremors from the underground testing occasionally crack foundations. There was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a different time period. You know, we, it, it was the period of, you know, the, the Vietnam War and uh, people started to question, you know, nuclear deterrence and if a nuclear war was even survivable. So it was a much different period uh, than the earlier, you know, heydays of the mushroom clouds in the air. And the earlier time, really, it, it really created this whole um – kind of atomic culture as well, which I found really interesting. I mean, all of the sudden you had all these atomic toys and atomic testing toys and Miss Atom Bomb and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It, it, Vegas really kind of, this is the neat thing I've always found about Las Vegas is it really kind of embraces these interesting periods in its history and, and just kind of, it's almost like they figure out if there's a way to make money off of it or a way to commercialize it, they absolutely do. That was especially true in Las Vegas, but it was a national kind of pop culture phenomenon at that time. And again, it goes back to the period when this was patriotic. You know, you were testing nuclear weapons. It was part of all – it actually became part of our national identity. And I 
we have a neat, neat little exhibit in the museum on the pop culture period when, you know, you had atomic this and atomic that on everything you can imagine. And we do a lot of uh, contrast or comparisons today on our museum tour to North Korea. North Korea is the only country that still tests nuclear weapons, but they're very much where we were in the 1950s, not only in their development of nuclear weapons, but nuclear weapons in North Korea have become part of North Korea's identity. And the only way I can really convey that to our visitors is use the comparison of how it was felt in this country in the 1950s. You know, today, if you start talking about nuclear weapons, you'll, people will kind of frown. But back then, it was just a very gun-ho, proud thing. America had, they built the bomb, and they had the bomb, and they were testing the bomb, and we were, it was going to defend us against any future war. Were there any concerns at that time uh, about and again, I guess being in the early infancy of this and not really quite knowing the effects other than, I guess, um, you know, what they would have seen in, in bombings in Japan and things like that in World War II. Um, was there any concerns about radiation or anything like that as far as these tests and people standing on rooftops in Las Vegas watching nuclear bombs go off? Was there that concern about radiation at all? Very early on, we didn't re recognize the potential hazards but most of the radiation was carried with the winds in the above ground atmospheric days and it went into arizona and utah it didn't really stay here in nevada the prevailing winds protected las vegas um there were a lot of the above ground tests were actually fairly clean because they realized at a certain point that if the fireball of the shot hit the ground it would stir up dust and debris, and that is the stuff that carried the radioactivity when it went back up into the atmosphere. What they eventually did was they built the towers higher and higher, up to almost 500 feet. And then the, the bigger for the bigger test, they actually suspended the bombs from a, a balloon on a cable and got them up almost 1,000 feet. And when the shots did not, the fireball did not hit the ground, they were fairly clean. And then, of course, by 1963, we went to underground testing, and except for one test, everything was totally contained under the ground, and there was no more fallout after that period. The worst of the fallout, when people talk about fallout and downwinders and this sort of stuff, that really happened more so in the Pacific Ocean. There were some very bad incidents where, uh, especially the huge thermal nuclear test, uh, some of that radiation went all the way around the world. And so you mentioned that there was, except for one one incident where things were contained, were there any other incidents or accidents at this test site that that may have made it into the news or, or stirred up some controversy? Well, the things we hear about today are a couple of the early, again, uh, above ground tests where the, the fireballs hit the ground. There was, in other words, some very dirty shots that the... Uh, uh, fallout went into other states and to this day there are people you know downwinders who as you know younger people at that time were exposed to this and so the base is still there and they're still in operation you mentioned it's it's a secure area i'm guessing and and so what is now that there's no more uh nuclear atomic testing going on what's what's happening out there or is it classified and you could tell me but then you'd have to kill me well there, there's <laughs> Very public uh, projects, and to this day, they test the viability of nuclear weapons. Now, by treaty, and we observe this, we no longer test 
nuclear weapons in the sense that we allow them to attain a chain reaction. But we do test plutonium, and uh, we, we can test it so it attains a subcritical reaction. And they've been doing this since 1992. There's a uh, facility deep underground at the test site, very public, where they routinely test uh, the components of a nuclear bomb and plutonium, which is the core triggering mechanism. Uh, one point a lot of people do not realize is that we not only gave up nuclear testing in 1992, but we ceased building new nuclear weapons. Every nuclear weapon we have in our arsenal today dates back prior to 1992. So we have an aging nuclear stockpile. This is not true in China and Russia. They have modernized their nuclear arsenals, but we have not done that. So we we have to make sure these weapons still work if they're ever needed. And the Nevada test site today is where they do that. And so with the, the current test site, I know in, in doing a little bit of research online um, and the, the historical test site, there are tours that go out to the historical test site, is there not? Correct. The Department of Energy, which is the modern-day successor to the old Atomic Energy Commission, does monthly tours of the test site. Now, they leave from the museum, but we really have nothing to do with them. In order to sign up for one of these tours, you have to go to their website, and there's a uh, an area where you can sign up. Usually, they're booked several months in advance. Oh, wow. So, okay. coming to Las Vegas, that's something you probably want to plan on at least a year ahead of time. But it's an all-day tour, and it's uh, an amazing thing. You get to go out and see some of these old structures that are still standing that survive nuclear tests. There's actually an iron bridge out there that is just bowed, you know, from the blast of a nuclear bomb. You get to see the uh, one of the uh, big crater, Sedan crater, that's from that plowshare project I spoke of where they were blowing huge, huge bombs up, you know, just under the surface. So let's talk a little bit about the the museum itself. The museum, you 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 go in the main entrance and then you, it's broken up into several different galleries. Let's talk a little bit about some of those those galleries. Mentioned earlier the the pop culture one, which again I love. It's one of those ones that I I always kind of spot something new every time I'm in there. But as I say, it's broken up into a lot of different uh, different galleries. That's true, uh, although. The galleries are all part of one experience, and I like the way the museum is laid out. You know, they, modern museums aren't laid out this way too much uh, now, but I think it's very effective because it tells a very chronological order. And I, I get to help with a lot of the school tours. We do a lot of school tours here, and I like to work with the kids. And I always, beginning the tours, I say, okay, we're going we're gonna to go into a time machine. And it's very much like a time machine because you're walking through a tunnel of time. It's a chronological experience. And we start with the 1945, the Manhattan Project. We show them a picture of the first uh, nuclear test in history. And then we talk about how the Nevada test site came about and the Cold War and some of the Pacific test. And there's a very popular exhibit, as you spoke of, the pop culture case, where you see all these interesting things from the 1950s. And on and on and on, you know, through the underground testing and we end up talking about the modern projects going on at the test site today. So it's it's quite a unique experience. I like, as you say, there's not a lot of museums that are laid out in that, that chronological order. And uh, my wife and I, whenever we travel anywhere in the world, museums are, are a thing. We're, we're kind of museum nerds. And so I can absolutely appreciate that 
very clearly laid out path of the direction that you want to go. It, it really does tell a, a great story uh, of the museum. It's, it's fantastic. I love it. So as, as people have moved through one of the, the, the highlights in my mind um, in the museum is the ground zero theater. That's one of the most popular exhibits. Uh, you've seen that. And it's, it's not only a good orientation piece on the whole museum, the whole history, but it starts off with a recreation of one of those early above ground tests. And I, I tell people when I'm, I'm giving a tour, I sit them down and I say, okay, uh, you're kind of in a makeshift bunker. But back in those days, there were no bunkers when they invited people out to watch these tests. And they had VIP viewing areas. Uh, Walter Cronkite often went out there and covered them for, uh, uh, I think it was CBS. And there were actually a couple occasions where they took school kids out there. And of course, you know, any type of VIP in town would have ended up out there. But they were just basically uh, bleachers out in an open field. And generally, you were seated about nine miles away from the blast. Now, keep in mind, these were generally the early atomic test. They were something on the magnitude of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which really weren't very big bombs, okay? And you can sit nine miles away and watch one of these things go off, and you're fairly safe. I mean, you, you would get a little radiation, as you would if you got a dental x-ray. But, but you would feel the wind and the sand come at you. You would see the blast, and the only protection you would have been given were dark goggles because watching the actual explosion could damage your eyes if you didn't have protective lenses. Uh, but that's what that Ground Zero Theater tries to recreate, what it was like to actually watch one of those early nuclear tests. So let's talk as well a little bit about the um – the volunteers and the guides that work in your museum. I've had the pleasure of, uh, of walking in and, and having conversations with some of them. They are absolutely amazing people. And some of them are folks that have actually worked at the test site and have worked in the military and have been involved in, in some of these different projects as well. Yes. And we're so lucky because we have volunteers, docents, that are veterans from the days of nuclear testing. We have one gentleman that goes all the way back to the early, early days of the above ground test. Uh, we're not able to always have those people every day of the week. We try. But if we have a group coming in that calls in advance and requests a tour, we can usually set a group up with a tour guide that actually worked at the test site. And as well, too, I just want to jump back to some of the artifacts that you guys have in the museum as well. You guys have got your hands on some some really cool stuff and some really interesting stuff. Is there anything that uh, that you you find particularly interesting or you think is particularly unique to the museum? Uh, there's a lot of unique items. Uh, we're actually working on a new exhibit that we hope to have open by next summer on the 75th anniversary of the Trinity test, the first nuclear test. And what we're really trying to get is one of the early demonstrator models of the fat man bomb. That would be quite a unique artifact. Uh, and we hope to have that here within a year. We do have a number of casings of the different types of nuclear weapons. Uh, there's a, a weapon on display called a B 61. And that is a very, very old weapon, but, uh, People are surprised when we tell them that that is our most advanced nuclear weapon in the arsenal. It's very old, yes, but that's what we have. Now, they've, you know, put that into cruise missiles and all sorts of different configurations, but the, the basic nuclear device is still the same that we have on display. 
It's it's really really amazing to be able to go through and and see some of the uh, the artifacts and the items that you guys have in there. It's just it's one of those places that again, like for me, I can go through and it's it's too even even having been there several times. It's a it's a two hour adventure for me. So for a first timer, you're talking multiple hours, aren't you? Well, and a, a new feature we have now is we have a 100 seat theater. Uh, we call it the Area 51 Theater because it does play some features on Area 51 through the day. But it has a, a schedule uh, of about nine to ten features that play in a loop all through the day. They talk about nuclear testing, uh, A-bombs in Nevada. There's a, actually a very new feature there about the British nuclear bomb project. But, you know, you can, you can take a tour the museum for an hour or two hours and you can easily spend the rest of the afternoon just sitting in the theater watching those different features. They're very, very interesting. And there's no additional charge for that. That all comes with the standard admission price. And I do want to hit too on on the website and some of the stuff that you guys have, have gone on there. Um, you have a link to your YouTube channel, which uh, I was cruising through uh, a while ago. You guys have some amazing stuff on that YouTube channel. I mean, if anybody is interested at all in anything to do with atomic history, atomic testing, among other things, People absolutely need to check out this YouTube channel, don't they? There, there, as you said, some amazing things. We have a distinguished lecture series where once a month we bring in a prominent speaker and we usually record those with their permission, and those are placed on our YouTube channel. And there's, you know, uh, the pioneers in nuclear testing and nuclear weapons, and it's just not nuclear weapons. I mean, we go into all sorts of other related topics, the Cold War, Area 51. Area 51 was actually initially a part of the test site. Uh, all sorts of really unique things. Information for the museum. If people want to want to hunt you guys down online and find you, of course, you're you're on the web. You're on social media. Where can people access you guys? The web page has links. That's the best way. And as I said, if you're coming, if you tell us in advance when you're coming, and if, if you have a group of you know even five or more people and want a guided tour, we can we can work with you on that. We're open every day of the week. Closed, you know, Christmas. Uh, New Year's and Thanksgiving, that sort of thing. But um, we're we're here almost around the clock, and not a far trek off the strip either. I mean, you guys are just uh, east on on Flamingo Road. I, I don't know if I'd want to do the walk on a really hot day in the middle of July, but it's it's not a bad walk to do. It's an easy Uber ride or cab ride uh, from the strip, or even from downtown. Excellent. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to sit and chat with me today. Uh, I really do appreciate it, and uh, I really hope that uh, the people will go and check you guys out. Thank you very much. Please come and visit. If you'd like more information on the National Atomic Testing Museum, visit them online at nationalatomictestingmuseum.org. And be sure to follow them on Twitter at Atomic Museum and on Instagram at Atomic Museum LV. And that officially closes out another episode of the podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter, or you're after suggestions for your next Las Vegas vacation of where to stay, where to eat, what to do, or what to see, or you've got ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please reach out to me via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas, or drop me an email directly at jeff at walkernewmedia.com. 
As for my next Vegas trip, by the time you're listening to this podcast, I'll be on it. I booked to stay at Planet Hollywood, which I'm really looking forward to as it's a new resort for me to check out and review. I've also got my eye on a few new restaurants to take in, and I've got some interviews lined up for upcoming episodes of the podcast as well. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. Make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean. And don't forget to visit jeffdoesvegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode number 43 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast, a Walker New Media production.